Good morning. Um, my name is Matt. Uh, let me have my welcome to uh, Andres. Um, as Jill was saying uh, just now, we, uh, we return this morning uh, to our series that we've been in for the last uh, nearly 18 months, uh, working through Mark's Gospel, um, chapter by chapter, passage by passage. Uh, and those of us, uh, those of us who are who are there, um, particularly back uh, last autumn, uh, might remember um, the Mark and Sandwich um, youth group. Hopefully, you guys remember it from our study on Friday night. Uh, you can explain uh, to the explore leaders after the sermon uh, what you think a Mark and Sandwich is. Um, and like a sandwich, Mark often structures his gospel um, by giving us an event sandwiched between two quite similar events. Uh, like, like something succulent uh, sandwiched between two pieces of, uh, of chunky bread. Um, and that's exactly what we have in our passage this morning. In fact, we have two Mark and sandwiches uh, in the verses in Bali just read for us, uh, each of them centred around, um, around a meal. And the first, a woman anoints Jesus at a meal in Bethany in um, verses three to nine. And that's sandwiched between the plotting of the chief priests and teachers of the law and the betrayal of Judas in verses 1 and 2 and then verses 10 and 11. Uh, and then second, we have the Last Supper at the heart of a second meal in verses 22 to 26. And that gets sandwiched between two dark prophecies Jesus makes. One, his betrayal by one of his closest friends in verses 18 to 21. And two, his desertion by the rest of his friends in verses 27 to 31. But what is it uh, that Mark wants us to see in these uh, these sandwiches he's given us? Or well, what does the filling, the event on the inside, show us about the bread buns, the events on the outside, uh, and vice versa? Uh, let's pray now uh, that God will show us something of that as we look at these uh, verses together this morning. Father, thank you for your word to us here in Mark. We pray that we will get to know you better as we read it. Amen. So let's begin by looking at the first meal, in which we see that we are to wholeheartedly worship the one who would be killed. We are to wholeheartedly worship the one who would be killed. Verses 1 to 11. Uh, so we pick up the story in verse one, shortly before Jesus' death, as Jill was saying. Uh, and we begin just a couple of days before Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread uh, in the court of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, who were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But we're looking to do it under the radar, we learn in verses one and two. And then with verse three, the scene shifts to Bethany. Um, Jesus is sharing a meal at the house of uh, Simon, the presumably now healed leper. And from John's account of these events in John 12, uh, we know that this is a group of friends, a group of followers of Jesus. Uh, but verse three, um, in bursts an unnamed woman with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Precious stuff. The woman proceeds to break the jar and pour the entire content over Jesus. Sorry, what just happened? She broke the jar. Does she not realise that this perfume is worth serious money? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages. 
is 300 denarii value would have been enough to pay 300 days of a labourer's wage, enough to feed 300 destitute families for a day. We're not talking a hundred pound bottle of Chanel here. We're talking more like a 10 grand bottle. We're talking deposit on a house, a new car, new kitchen type amounts of money. What was she thinking? I mean, we're all pro-Jesus here. We're all all friends and followers at this meal. I mean, mean, Martha Lazarus is here. No one's saying don't honour Jesus. But such extravagance. Such thoughtlessness, such recklessness. Surely we can, surely we must do better than that. I mean, has she even considered the tax implications? Has she looked at the budget? Has she seen the state of the savings accounts? Where's the careful consideration? The wise stewardship? And especially, I I mean, especially when there's such need around. And Jesus could barely walk a mile without being accosted by the poor and the needy. Why this waste of perfume? Some of them responded in verse four. It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And verse five, they rebuked her harshly. But did you notice what Jesus said to them? in response to their rebuke. Uh, Look down at your Bible, if you've still got it open, and follow with me from verse six. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Wow. What a response. Jesus sees this woman's extravagant, uncalculated, wasteful, display of love for him but instead of condemning her for her lack of prudence he commends her for her devotion instead of condemning her for her lack of prudence he commends her for her devotion she did what she could he says Why this response from Jesus? Response that's so different from that of his followers and probably so different, if we're honest, from what most of ours would have been? Well, I think because of what this woman had understood about Jesus, what his friends had failed to understand. She had understood that Jesus is worthy of everything. Jesus is worthy of everything. Yes, Jesus' followers' accusation that this woman had been injudici- injudicious had a ring of truth about it. 
Yes, their claim that the value of the perfume could have been given to the poor sounds valid. And of course, we know that Jesus deeply loved and cared for the poor. We see him again and again in Mark's gospel, taking time to stop, bless, help, love and honour the socially outcast and the destitute. Yes, all those things are true. But surely what is really going on here, as one writer puts it, is that these followers, in demeaning the woman and her gift, are also demeaning Jesus, though they might not spell it out. They regard Jesus unworthy of such an extravagant gift. They do not think that Jesus is worthy of this gift. They think to treat Jesus like this is a waste. What he calls a beautiful thing, in verse 6, they call a waste. Verse 4. Take a moment to let that sink in. It shouldn't sit comfortably. For whether or not she's realised it, this woman has marked something that the rest of Jesus' friends at this meal have not, that his days are numbered, that he's soon to be killed. And her picture of adoration, what well, is fitting, his preparation for his burial, he calls it, is an act that will echo down through the generations. He says in verse nine, he's worthy of everything. But for one disciple, verse 10, this, uh, this extravagant display of emotion, not only tolerated but commended by Jesus, is simply too much. He wants out and he has every intention of profiting as he goes. So he heads to the chief priests and offers his services as a traitor. Let their delight at this offer in verse 11 send a chill down your spine. And our Mark and Sandwich is complete. In the middle of hate-filled chief priests, treacherous Judas and coin-counting disciples, we have a picture of the most extraordinary, humble, wholehearted worship of the one who was to be killed. A lesson we can all learn from, I think. But if you're anything like me, there's something that sits very uncomfortably in this scene. For those of us uh, who I expect, like most of Mark's audience, probably feel a bit more at home with the cow-pointing disciples than this woman and her exuberant display of emotion. For those of us who are, by character uh, and or by culture, restrained and reserved, cautious and careful in the way we manage our finances, our time, our lives, unemotional and understated in the way we present ourselves and our feelings. It doesn't sit quite comfortably, does it? Well, I, I don't think Mark is expecting total personality change from his readers. But I think he is giving a warning. I think he is saying, be careful. Be careful that your reserve isn't hiding a heart that's grown cold to Jesus. Or a heart that simply hasn't come anywhere close 
to grasping what Jesus is to you. But he's worthy of everything. And he's looking for wholehearted worship from his followers. If you're watching this morning and you're not a Christian, you're, you're happy with Christianity, perhaps, as long as it fits into certain parameters, as long as it's about morality and kindness and tradition and community, church weddings and carol concerts. But a scene like this one, this woman shamelessly causing a scene and making a fool of herself. Religious fundamentalists who take the Bible literally, who say that they have a relationship with God and who make ridiculous decisions about giving up their homes, careers, countries, dreams of having a family for the gospel. Well, that's not the sort of faith you're interested in at all. But if that's you, let me urge you to reconsider. Because that is exactly the sort of faith that Jesus here commends. And if there really is a God, then surely he, not us, gets to set the terms for how he is to be worshipped. For what these people think is a waste, he calls a beautiful thing. But what about those of us who already believe, and yet we still slightly squirm, as I'm sure many of Mark's readers did, because such an extravagant display of emotion is just so alien to us. I count myself among that group. Well, let me give them three suggestions that I hope will be practical and helpful, and three C's. Well, the first, copy others. Find people who are better at expressing their love for God openly and imitate them. Why not use this season we're in of considering how we can be a church that welcomes and loves people from different cultures as an opportunity to think a little outside our Christian comfort zones and to learn from brothers and sisters from other cultures who express their love for God more freely. That's a copy of this. Number two, cultivate spontaneity. One of the wonderful things about this woman's act, I think, is the simple spontaneity of it. You, you don't get the sense that she spent ages deliberating about whether or not this was the right course of action. It, it seems rather more that it just occurred to her as a good idea and she did it. And for me, at least, I know how often I think of a good idea, resolve that I must do it and then don't. And so I wonder, and I say this as someone who loves to plan, I wonder whether maybe we could do with learning to be a bit more spontaneous and a bit less planned, a bit less structured, a bit less rigid. Now, of course, that, that doesn't mean we throw all our budgets in the bin, we give up on any form of practical planning, and from now on we only ever do the first thing that pops into our heads that seems like a good idea. No. But I wonder whether we might honour God a bit better if we were a bit less ruled by our heads and a bit quicker to, to flick open our Bible in a few spare minutes and read, to look up and listen to that song that we heard and liked, to actually pray in that spare moment, as we said we would, a bit quicker to, um, to send that text or arrange that walk, to step up and serve, to give, to go. 
for we know, don't we, that if we give it long enough, we'll always find a reason not to do those things if we don't just simply forget our good intentions altogether. So copy others, cultivate spontaneity. And number three, care about your spiritual, emotional life. Care about your spiritual, emotional life. So many of us, uh, again, me very much included, are most comfortable as Christians and in general in the realm of the mind. We love to think and we see the Christian life as primarily one of growing in knowledge and understanding. We love our creeds and our statements of faith and our songs rich in theological truths. Our shelves are filled with books of doctrine and commentaries that we probably haven't read. And we're quick to reach for our study Bibles, our interlinear texts, our commentaries in our quiet times. Our church calendars are filled with Bible studies that, that frankly don't look a world away from a university English literature seminar. And of course, we want to grow in our understanding of God and mine the treasures of wisdom that could be found in Jesus. But surely growing in knowledge isn't the end goal. It's not, not what we're ultimately aiming for. And don't we run the risk of being just a little pharisaical, of preferring the gifts of God, salvation, grace, eternal life, sanctification, wisdom, over God himself. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus doesn't say that eternal life is to know about God. He says that eternal life is to know God himself. And of course, the, the more we know about God, the better we know our Bibles, the better we can know him. But, but surely the knowledge is the vehicle more than the destination. And so I wonder whether we need to take a little more care over our emotional, spiritual life. How can we do that? Again, I want to be practical. A few possible suggestions. No doubt you'll have other better ones. But one, make your devotional life more devotional. Spend time in the Psalms and the songs of the Bible. Maybe read shorter passages. Read them more meditatively. And read them for days in a row, as we've done with Psalms 42 and 43. And come to God's word to receive, first and foremost, rather than to understand. Maybe leave the study Bible on the shelf for your quiet time. Another suggestion, read, watch and listen to things that will move your hearts as well as filling your mind. By all means, read Calvin and Carson, read blogs on apologetics, books on parenting, listen to podcasts on the Reformation. But don't just do that. Read, watch and listen to things that will move your hearts as well as filling your minds. And particularly, might I suggest, Christian music. Diana shared a great quote last week, didn't he? Melodies slip under the doorways of our doubts where said words stand knocking. Listen to Christian music in your quiet time, as you wash up, as you drive, as you run. Watch things like The Chosen on YouTube, look it up. Read books like Gentle and Lowly, read Francine Rivers, read C.S. Lewis, read Christian biographies. A third suggestion, 
And this one I think is a bit harder. Um, learn to talk your spiritual feelings. And for many of us, I suspect, we have a deep spiritual, emotional life. We just don't like to talk about it. We don't know how. It feels a little awkward. We, we don't talk very much about our emotional lives in general, let alone our spiritual, emotional life. Well, why not? With just one person over the next week or two, a spouse, a good friend, try to talk about your walk with God, not just with the language of the mind, but with the language of the heart. Or you could resolve that when you share prayer points at a home group on a walk with a friend, um, one of them mustn't be about something going on in your life or a truth you've learned, but must be something that's going on in your heart, a hurt, a joy, a struggle, a delight. And let me say again, I don't think Mark is uh, expecting total personality change from his readers. But I think he is warning us to be careful that our reserve isn't hiding a heart that's grown cold to Jesus. Or a heart that simply hasn't come anywhere close to grasping what Jesus is due. For he is worthy of everything. And he's looking for wholehearted worship from his followers. So we've seen that we are to wholeheartedly worship the one who would be killed. Second, we see that we are to desperately cling to the one who would be sacrificed. We are to desperately cling to the one who would be sacrificed. Verses 12 to 31. With verse 12, we shift ahead a couple of days to the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. In a scene reminiscent of the beginning of chapter 11, in which Jesus gave two of his disciples instructions for how to prepare for his entry to Jerusalem, we have here another set of instructions for how two of his disciples are to prepare for the Passover meal, verses 13 to 16. And everything is just as Jesus said, and they sit down to the meal in verse 17. But in the middle of this dinner, things take a difficult turn. Verse 18, while they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Jesus interrupts this meal to tell his disciples that he will be betrayed by one of his closest friends. It is one of the twelve. Verse 20 one who dips bread into the bowl with me. And the surprise and confusion of the disciples in verse 19 is palpable. But Jesus doesn't barricade the door, nor does he grab Judas by the throat in anger or fly off into a rage, as I think I would have been tempted to do. No. Why not? Well, because he knows that verse 21 the Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. And because he knows that if Judas does not betray him, if Jesus does not go to that cross, then what he is about to institute in this meal, this meal that lies at the centre of this sandwich, could not happen. Uh, look down with me and follow. Let, let's read again from verse 22. 
while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So short, so simple, so few words. And yet in these few words lie the clue to our salvation. Jesus' body given up symbolised in that scrap of bread. Jesus' blood poured out, symbolised in a gulp of red wine, poured out for many as a sign of the covenant, a sign of the promise God made to his people in Exodus 24, verse 8, and Leviticus 17, verse 11, that he would make atonement for his people with blood, that he would provide a sacrifice once and for all. What must have been going through those disciples' hearts as 1,000 years of their history was wiped out? A new Passover sacrifice, verse 12, now offered up. From this glorious high point, uh, we move out, verse 26, to the Mount of Olives, where we're brought back down to earth with another crushing prophecy. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For Judas was not going to be the only disciple who would let Jesus down. Despite the fierce protestations of Peter, verse 29 and 31, almost painful to read, every single one of the 12, all of Jesus' followers, were going to fall away. The sheep will be scattered. Their actions, later in the chapter, would speak far louder than their words, here in verse 31. And so we have a grim picture in this second Mark and Sandwich. A grim picture of betrayal, desertion and denial. But remember, remember what lay in the middle in those five precious verses, 22 to 26. For in the middle of this picture of failure and sin, they are precious me with those precious words. Take it. This is my body. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. These weak, broken, sinful, hopelessly overconfident disciples were exactly the people Jesus was sacrificing himself for. While Judas may have turned down the opportunity of repentance, Matthew's Gospel tells us, for the rest, what hope, what comfort, what reassurance Jesus' words here must have offered in their weakness and their sinfulness. And for us, weak, broken, sinful as we are, what hope, what comfort, what reassurance they offer us too. For this meal, 
that death were for us too. And so we too must desperately cling to the one who is crucified. So we've perhaps already seen ourselves in the, um, the coin counting followers of verses 1 to 11. I wonder whether we see ourselves in these um, confused disciples of the second half of this passage who thought they could be good enough for God, who thought they must be good enough for God. Some of us perhaps fall into the trap of thinking that we can be good enough for God. We're delighted by our own godliness, our spiritual disciplines, our service, our sacrifice, the fruit of the spirit we feel we're showing. We think we're immune from temptation, from sin. We think we're capable of great things for God, of doing anything for the gospel. We're huge and our God is only a tiny bit bigger than we are. And we're too busy praising ourselves to praise him. Others perhaps fall into the trap of thinking that we must be good enough for God. We know how far short we fall. Maybe there's a sin we don't seem to be able to overcome, a situation we can't seem to get out of, or we've been knocked to the floor again by the hardship of life. And we feel fragile and ashamed, unable to lift our heads, unable to approach the God we've let down again. But whichever of those two people we are, isn't the answer the same? Doesn't Jesus say the same thing to us? Take it. This is my body. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Because the solution is the same, isn't it? You cannot come to God on your own, and you must not try to come to God on your own. Your most glorious performances will get you no nearer. Your deepest sins will place you no further away. There's only one response you can have to Jesus. Drop everything you are carrying. Put out your hands and take what he offers. And then desperately cling to the one who is crucified. One final comment. Before we finish, do you miss taking the Lord's Supper, sharing communion together as a church? Of course, the Lord's Supper isn't the only way Jesus has given us to remember what he's done for us. But I think it is an important one for the church as a body. One that Jesus commanded, one that Paul felt was to be close to the heart of what it means to be a church coming together to worship. And so do we miss it? I wonder whether this pandemic has shown us that we've perhaps lost a little in the modern Western church, something of the privilege, the blessing, the importance of taking the Lord's Supper. Because over the past year, so many of us have stopped taking the Lord's Supper. And I think it would be fair to say we've barely even noticed its absence. Well, I long that he could take it now after looking at these verses together. That's perhaps a reason to come to our in-person services if you haven't been before. 
Let us not neglect this precious meal our Lord has given us by which to remember and desperately cling to his sacrifice. So as we draw to an end, as we finish a passage filled with betrayal, scorn, desertion and failure, let us remember, let us cling to the one who holds out this bread and says, take. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus' sacrifice for us. Thank you for his body and his blood offered as a sign of the covenant so that we might be forgiven. Help us to take what he has to give us, to not be too proud. Help us to humbly and wholeheartedly worship him as he deserves. And we long for the day when we may as a whole church be able to gather together in person again and share this most wonderful meal you have given us of the Lord's Supper. Amen.